Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to discuss a blockbuster trend, one that is already having a significant impact on our lives. However, most of us are likely not aware of it, at least not yet. I'm speaking about blockchain technology. To help us learn more about blockchain technology, where it is and is going, and what opportunities it may offer you, we've brought on a highly qualified expert in that field, Edgar Fernandez. Edgar Fernandez is co-founder of EOS Costa Rica, where he oversees partnerships and business development. Edgar is an avid fintecher with a particular focus on the application of blockchain technology in finance. Before EOS Costa Rica, Edgar was a vice president for two major banks in New York, leading coverage of corporate clients in most of Latin America, with a focus on Central America and the Caribbean, and institutional investors in emerging markets. Edgar holds a BS in Commerce from the University of Virginia with a concentration in finance and accounting. Additionally, he has a vested interest in developing the entrepreneurial spirit and driving the use of technology to create decentralized networks. Hi, Edgar. Welcome to Looking Forward. Jeff, thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's a thrill to have you. This is a topic I'm really interested in, as you know. Edgar, can you please tell our listeners just a little bit more about your background? I said some things in the introduction, but also I'm particularly curious about how and when you first became interested in blockchain technology. Sure. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting story on my side. Um, I'm I studied finance and accounting, and I spent uh, 12 years in large investment banks, Barclays and Bank of America Merrill Lynch in New York. Um, so my uh, career path has always been in, in, in traditional finance and traditional banking. And uh, my discovering blockchain was really a family affair. I was introduced to it th- through through my, my father and my brother uh, in and around 2013, 2014 uh, as a new method of payment, as a new way to accept payments on the internet. Um, and was instantly intrigued, uh, especially when it was coming from uh, my father, who's a systems engineer, and then my, my brother, who's a software developer, and really the intersection between uh, finance and technology. And that's, that's what really piqued my interest. Okay. And a little bit more about your background. So I mentioned at the outset that you studied at the University of Virginia. And then as you pointed out, you worked for several big banks in New York. That's right. Yeah, I uh, I did my uh, my my undergraduate school at University of Virginia in finance and accounting, um, and then went straight to to New York. Uh, focused always in Latin America and emerging markets and very liquid markets uh, on the on the debt trading side. Uh, so I was uh, very much a, a traditional banker, and I call myself kind of a, a reformed banker in a way now, trying mm-hmm. to build decentralized systems of payments using blockchain technology. But yeah, my bank, my background is is that. And uh, in 2018, 
Uh, I uh, teamed up with my brother, as I mentioned, who was a software developer, and we started EOS Costa Rica, starting to build uh, blockchain-based applications. Okay. Edgar, this is going to be a very important question for you to answer, and it's not necessarily easy to answer, but you're going to give it the best shot as good as anybody can. Can you please give our listeners, many of whom may not be at all familiar with blockchain technology, a basic explanation of what it is and what it seeks to do? Yes. Uh, blockchain is a decentralized registry of data. It's a large ledger that no one controls. It's kept on several different computers uh, and it's accessed by various different users. What is it seeking to do? Uh, I think in its most powerful form, disrupt the idea of trust as in if we all have access and transparency and visibility into data and we don't have control over it, as in one user can change it, alter it, um, or delete it without others finding out, uh, we can then trust that data. And I think in its most powerful form, that's what it is. It's um, described, I think, beautifully by an author, uh, Michael Casey, as a truth machine or a mm. trust machine, if you want us to think about it that way. And it's looking to say, if we can all see what cards we're playing with, if we can all see what data is being uh, used, registered, and when, uh, then we can all uh, have trust in that data. Currently, uh, in the way that our uh, society is, is organized, we trust third parties to do that. Because you and I, Jeff, maybe don't know each other, don't have mutual trust, then we'll maybe tr trust a third party, whether that's a bank, a government institution, a regulator, a lawyer, uh, an audit firm like Deloitte or EY or sure. KPMG. These third party entities are really exist to provide trust. And uh, blockchain in its most powerful form, as, as I mentioned, is that it's disrupting trust and saying, if we can all see the same data and have a single source of truth, then uh, we can trust the system itself and not a third party. Okay. And we're going to get into more of that, I'm sure, later. Thank you. Now, our focus today, of course, Edgar, is on blockchain technology, but we often will hear cryptocurrencies mentioned in conjunction with blockchain. I personally will confess I'm not that interested in cryptocurrencies. I'm very interested in blockchain. I think it would be helpful for me and for the listeners if you could explain how they are related to one another, i.e. cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and how they are not related to one another. Of course, yeah. Um, I, I, I'll try and use as many analogies that help me uh, coming from a yes. non-technical standpoint and more from a business standpoint to try and, and, and answer your question, Jeff. Blockchain is the underlying technology of Bitcoin, which is the first cryptocurrency. Um, and they're not the same, right? Bitcoin is not equal to blockchain the same way that the internet is the underlying technology to email, for example. Bitcoin ah. is a use case mm. of blockchain, the same way as email is a use case of the internet. 
right? Now, it's, it's a very important use case um, in the context of blockchain, Bitcoin is the first one. And kind of connecting to what I was saying, it's disrupting trust. If the money in the form of money is, is the utmost trustiness uh, asset in a way, right? Yeah. Um, if I, if I'm, you know, if you're traveling the world and someone gives you a bill that you don't know, a Zimbabwean dollar or a, uh, a Turkish lira, and you're you're from, you know, the United States or or Costa Rica, where I'm from, you're not going to accept that currency because you don't trust it. You don't know it. You don't know who issues it, who backs it, what it is, right? So money is a big representation of that. But blockchain is just a, a, the underlying technology that says, I am going to be able to validate myself whether this transaction is a double spend, as in someone's already spent it, uh, or um, it is something that I should have trust in. Similarly, uh, you know, the internet allows for many, many different use cases. Blockchain does as well. I mean, it's not only here to disrupt trust in a monetary system, but trust in, in legal contracts, in uh, land registry, in health data, in uh, traceability of food, many other systems of data that uh, currently you know, we have no visibility into and hence no, no trust. Um, but the biggest difference here is blockchain is the technology that allows for cryptocurrencies to exist as in programmable money, as they call, right? You have business logic that's built in to the protocol itself. Um, but it's got many, many other use cases that are not related to cryptocurrencies at all. Similarly, as you know, e email is one use case to the internet, but there's so many other uh, use cases that we use the internet today for. Okay, that's a good analogy that you gave there with the internet and email. Just to come back at you, if you could clarify this further, what blockchain is really intended to do is really to improve trust, though, isn't it? You said it's sort of a trust disruptor, but it, doesn't it end up ultimately making people feel like whatever happened is real? It really happened, and this is the truth? Yes, that's a good point, Jeff, and, and I, maybe I should uh, make that distinction. It's here to disrupt the truth providers or the trust providers by increasing trust between two parties that don't necessarily know each other, need to know each other. Yeah. So we're trusting math and software code more than we're trusting a third party. So you're right. You're not disrupting trust itself. You're increasing trust by adding transparency, traceability, and disrupting uh, the institutions um, and, the, and usually the middlemen that provide that today. So um, the margin that uh, middlemen produce today in, in charging for that trust is the opportunity that blockchain has going forward. Thanks for clarifying that. Edgar, as you know, Looking Forward focuses on the future. But before we get into that, we first like to take a look a little bit backwards. So if you could please explain to us what's led us to this development and, and use of blockchain technology over the past, I don't know, you tell me when it started, past decade or two? Yes. Uh, the, the history, even though blockchain really appears with Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper um, in 2009, there's been many, many technologies that uh, together produce blockchain um, going back. Uh, the first one is 
asymmetrical cryptography. That's where we get the, the word for cryptocurrencies. So uh, hash algorithms um, that basically encrypt data uh, is one of the, the puzzle pieces that allow for blockchain to exist today. The second one would be peer-to-peer -peer networking. Um, the ability to have point-to-point and peer-to-peer instead of um, having a central party networking. Uh, so uh, clearly, you know, the internet and peer-to-peer and -peer systems in general allow for that. And the third, I would say, is, is game theory, right? How do we align the incentives between people that don't necessarily know each other to allocate resources to providing security to a decentralized network? So I would say if you look back, um, there's been different uh, iterations of digital cash, right? Uh, and they've all tried something like DigiCash or Hashcash, BitGold, all are, um, are the beginnings of what we see with, with uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin white paper in 2009. And it's the way that he elegant or he or she or they elegantly put those existing theories and, and uh, proof of concepts together that, that leads to blockchain. But it's really those three things, cryptography, peer-to-peer -peer networks and game theory that align together to build blockchain as we know it today. And the momentum or the driver behind this, I think you alluded to earlier, is this effort to, in a sense, filter out the middleman in terms of transactions so that it's a transaction that's logged or recorded and it's directly involving two people who may not know one another. That's why there was this momentum to do this, this interest to do this? Yeah, I think there are several different um, catalysts for why um, people, institution, organizations now are looking for a technology like blockchain. Uh, one of them would be security, right? If all this data is held centrally in a large honeypot, right? No matter how much money you spend trying to secure it, how... Uh, how, how big and how powerful your firewall is, we've already seen that it, it is impossible to do so. I mean, even the largest institutions like Equifax, Marriott Hotels, Yahoo, Verizon, the list goes on and on and on of centralized honeypots of data. Facebook, for example, we just had a big breach in Facebook. Yeah. And, and we're talking millions and millions of households, entities, private information. Uh, and these companies have billions of dollars in budget ex destined, earmarked specifically for protecting data. And it's still, the, the bigger the honeypot, the more resources the hackers and um, illicit uh, actors will will do to try and get it. The bigger the honeypot, the bigger the reward, and uh, the the more intricate and advanced these technologies get. Same, you know, not not only consumer security but national security, right? And we've already proven that um, that nation states also are involved in these activities. So, one, if we have all the data and one one locale, one, one area, one computer, centralized, one institution, then that's exactly where you go. If it's all decentralized, you improve the security of that. So that's one aspect why I think uh, there's a catalyst behind blockchain technology. Two is, as you mentioned, uh, the middlemen in increase uh, friction. Uh, 
and slow down processing times. Um, so you would have third parties that then have to um, uh, reconcile mistakes, look back to see whether they have a, a true copy or not. Um, and so there's a lack of confidence and lack of efficiency in using central parties. So if we're able to have real-time auditing and visibility into data as it's, as it's inputted, uh, then we become way more efficient. And you'll see things, uh, especially in finance, right, where we have a banking settlement times that takes three to five days, uh, moving to the speed of the internet, which is seconds to minutes, right? Yeah. And I think that's where, where we're trying to move to. And generally, just uh, this idea that your data no longer belongs to you, this ownership, right? As we move into the future, and I think your, your podcast is looking to to, to provide some perspective here. Exactly. Um, if data is truly the capital of the future, right? The oil of the future. Yes. Um, and I, I, would, I would argue already of the present, then whoever owns that is extremely valuable, right? And we've already seen, you know, the top companies in the world here, Facebook, App, uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft, they all own massive amounts of data. Uh, and even banks are converting from being capital intensive to now data intensive. Mm. So the, the, the new capital of the future is data. And if that's the case and they're all centralized, will they become extremely big and extremely powerful? So trying to, to take back ownership of your data and say, I would opt into, but if it's valuable, then I should be paid and rewarded for it, right? Mm. Um, and blockchain allows you to do that by connecting your data to a private key that you own, that you control. And then it's not a, it's, it's not an opt out system, it's an opt in system. I need to agree to say, I'm gonna give you access to, you know, where I ate today, where I live, my, uh, my likes and dislikes, um, you know, where I traveled, what cars I like, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because clearly this is valuable data, not only to advertisers, but to, to large institutions everywhere. So this, I think those are the three things that are really catalyzing or, or being the motivator or the tailwind uh, to the use of blockchain technology. One, security, two, efficiency, and three, uh, definitely the data ownership. That was a great explanation. Really appreciate that. I'm gonna say something to you that's very simplistic. It's something that I look at when I'm trying to understand the most simplistic level of blockchain. Is it kind of like this, Edgar? When I go to a bank and I wanna get into my safe deposit box, there's a sheet that I sign and there's a date and they might even stamp the time that I was there. Is that like a similar kind of a ledger, but it's not electronic? Is that the concept of the ledger? Yes, I th I'd say in a, in a, in a very simple uh, use case, uh, a blockchain can be a, uh, a timestamp, right? Time what happened when and who. Um, the difference with your analogy there, Jeff, is that when you leave that safe deposit box, who has a copy of that ledger, right? And if it wasn't convenient for that bank, that you actually came in and out, would they maybe delete that log or record? Mm. 
or was it if it was convenient for that bank to share that record with someone else would they ask for your permission hmm. would you even know that that was shared good point so blockchain would be for example if every time that you went to your safe deposit box the bank would have a copy of that ledger you would have a copy of that ledger and anyone who's interested right a public maybe a regulator maybe your lawyer maybe your kids maybe your inheritors anybody that has any interest in knowing the single source of truth of what happened did you actually go to that bank did you actually open your safety deposit box were you actually there physically doing it and who signed off on it maybe maybe you can only open that safety deposit box if your key's there and your lawyer's key is there all this is possible using a blockchain uh, without physically being there, right? And um, and you accessing that record. You could also verify if the bank itself had opened your safety deposit box without you knowing, right? Was there a log of someone at the an employee that for some reason went rogue and was able to access your safety deposit box? And if the bank was liable, would they tell you about it, right? If you sued them, would they uh, would they willingly give up the records of a of an employee um, that they're liable for, right? Uh, accessing your safety deposit box again, you're trusting them, right? The whole right. point of this is don't trust, you know, validate and verify. Yeah, very good. Thanks for clarifying that. Now, if we just focus for a moment on present times, when I say present times, Edgar, to clarify, I'm talking about just before COVID really kicked in big times, like around March of last year. If you just think about before COVID, we'll get to COVID. Can you give us some examples of what industries and companies have been using blockchain technology and maybe a little bit of an explanation about why? This is pre-COVID, okay. we'll talk about COVID. Well, before COVID, I would say that the biggest hype cycle in uh, blockchain was 2017. Mm. Um, where we had a big run up in the price of cryptocurrencies and really blockchain became a buzzword and all sorts of uh, C-suite meetings of saying, hey, blockchain's here to change everything, right? Uh, how we organize our data. And there we saw a big influx of enterprise blockchain companies trying to see how can we use this? Uh, I'd say the, the first and the most obvious is financial services. Mm. So we had big con bank consortiums uh, come up. Um, uh, there's a consortium called R3 that started to, to investigate how they're going to use blockchain to settle uh, trading of securities, mm. right? So maybe um, uh, bonds and stocks and derivatives on a blockchain. How can we move settlement times from T plus three, which is three days after uh, the execution of an order to minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Or seconds or real time settlement. Wow. So the first industry I think that really pushed in that was the financial industry looking to become more efficient. Weirdly enough, uh, one of the largest uh, industries that's being disrupted by blockchain as well, because you know there's so many middlemen in, in finance. But yes. they started using blockchain to to lower settlement times. They also started to use it to streamline processes, like loan loan approvals, so uh, loan applications, who approved what, when, and where how this moved from a credit officer to a compliance officer to a liquidity and finance officer into disbursement. 
um, and providing traceability throughout that approval line. That would be one, I think, financial services. Uh, you saw um, big banks like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs starting to copy public blockchains, uh, mostly Ethereum, and, and, and provide in, in making private instances of that in financial services. You mentioned Ethereum. Some people may not know about Ethereum. So if you could just... Sorry, yeah. Um, Ethereum is the second uh, blockchain ever, public blockchain, Bitcoin okay. being the first. And the difference there is that Ethereum introduces a concept of smart contracts, which means mm -hmm. contracts that, that the business logic themselves is immutable on a blockchain. So once we enter into a contract, uh, we, can, uh, we can't change it. Um, and we can get more and more into that. But, it, you know, another analogy that I like using is if Bitcoin's a check, right? It's, it's a contract. A check is a contract. And there I'd say, you know, from debit my account, credit Jeff's account on this day, and I put a little signature on it and I give it to you. That's a contract. Um, and you turn it into your bank and they, they actually make the transfer. Uh, Ethereum says, hey, instead of just being a check, why don't we just give you a, a blank piece of paper? And then Jeff and I can enter a contract saying, hey, if it rains tomorrow in Minneapolis, then I'm going to pay you, right? And so then we grab a blank piece of paper, we put this contract together, and we save it on the blockchain, which means that it's immutable. And no matter uh, you know, how much I say it didn't rain or you say it did, uh, it's still going to auto-execute. So Ethereum is a, what we call a second-generation blockchain, and, and it introduces a very powerful concept called smart contracts. But back to your question, I think financial services was one of the first ones pre-COVID. Then um, supply chain. So the traceability of products during the supply chain. Um, you had IBM with a, a, a type of, of blockchain called Hyperledger uh, create a blockchain and a use case called TradeLens uh, that I think Maersk as well, a large shipper, started to use to trace uh, shipments mm. using a blockchain to handle disputes of where something is, when and why, who was the last time, last person to touch it and where is it located. Um, so a logistics was a big use case in supply chain. And I'd say the third one is one that we kind of already mentioned a bit, which is uh, the stamping of legal documents. A blockchain in, it, in, in a very simple form can be sort of a digital notary, right? Mm. So. Right now, instead of a, I'm grabbing a document and going to a notary and they put a little stamp on it and it's signed and then I have to check to see that the, you know, in the, in the county clerk, this notary is actually, you know, someone to trust, you would grab a document uh, and it could be, you know, anything really. And then I'd say, I'm going to save a copy of that to the blockchain and timestamp it. And you you'd know that no one can change that timestamp. Uh, and so there Therefore, you're, you're notarizing a document. So I'd say, in the, in the sense, legal documents started to use blockchain even before COVID. I mean, we can give more and more examples, but let, to summarize, I think those are the three big use cases, financial services, supply chain logistics, and the third one, legal and legal documents. Okay. Looking Forward is heard around the world, Edgar, as you probably know, and you are in Costa Rica, so you're an example. It's not just the United States podcast. So all of this stuff that you've been sharing with us is the advancement in blockchain technology taking place at similar paces around, we'll say, the developed world. I know I had a great guest on 
several months ago talked about blockchain use in Estonia. So I know Estonia has been doing it, but how do the different countries in the aggregate compare? You don't have to break down every country, but is everybody kind of moving in lockstep in the developed world or are some countries way ahead of others? Yeah, Estonia is a great example, by the way. But um, no, I think definitely some regions are moving much, much quicker. And I would say that Asia is definitely moving much, much quicker than I would say Western Europe and, and the United States. Um, and adoption is coming to Latin America and to, to, to Africa as well, um, because the need is higher. And we can get into a little bit about that. Maybe I'll answer the first question, why I think Asia is moving quicker. Uh, one, they're much more comfortable with mobile payments. And mobile payments was much more native in Asia. Uh, and the adoption was much quicker to uh, try and I, 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 you know, have trust in something that's on your cell phone and not a bill in your wallet. And I think that allows uh, for larger uh, adoption rate, at least when it comes to payments and using blockchain for payments. Secondly, I think Asia is much more comfortable with this idea of digital ownership. And this might come from the gaming industry as well, where assets that you own online do have value and they don't have to be tangible, right? Mm. And so I think that just base layer uh, besides just the technical technological revolution and leapfrogging that Asia in general, and you know, obviously talking Japan, China, uh, Taiwan, Malaysia, Vietnam. I mean, wow. uh, Asia generally, but it, probably China and, and, and Japan and Korea. Uh, Korea is definitely one of the biggest adoption rates in, in blockchain because of this idea of just things that live in the digital world are real. Right, uh, they're, they're, they might not be tangible, but they're definitely of value, mm. and that's huge when you're um, using, you know, either investing in crypto assets or uh, accepting digital payments or um, being okay with using digital ID, right, and, and um, decentralized ID. So basically, your passport's not really just a physical document, but something that can live online and on your cell phone, and that allowed them to move quicker. I would say I've had the privilege of going to Korea for a, a cryptocurrency and blockchain conference. And it's amazing uh, how much more accepted and advanced this was. And this was, I wouldn't say two to three years ago than even the conversation in New York City, where I, uh, I reside for, for many, many years. So that's, that's, a, that's one thing I'd say, just a cultural acceptance of digital assets and unique assets that live only in a virtual world allow the concept itself that blockchain allows to move quicker. And then what I'll say is, I think the capital and the investment that, that exists in the United States and Europe have allowed for large blockchain development firms and large uh, companies to start investing in minimal viable product and proof of concepts in the blockchain space. But the need for a lot of these use cases really reside in Latin America and Africa and emerging markets. And I think that's where there's great opportunity. Wow. So, and mostly because if you go to Latin America or Africa, you don't need to explain why we can't trust just government with money, right? Or why property rights can't just be kept in a national registry on in pen and paper. 
right? Um, why the unique transparency in public funds? Why, you know, there's corruption that lives in and outside of, of, of third parties, whether that's a bank or a government institution, and why we need visibility and transparency. So you don't have to sell that. Why? Sometimes in the United States and Western Europe, you do that all the time. And I've heard that from friends and family, too. They'll be like, well, why do I need Bitcoin? My Visa card works great. <laughs> or why do why do I need this if you know my fidelity account is you know super easy yeah. right why do I need digital payments when I've got venmo well that's because you live in a very advanced and privileged economic system um and so it's harder for you to understand the why and you have a, an innate trust in government institutions because well they haven't defrauded you as openly or as blatantly as you might see in in different countries in Latin America or in Africa. So that's why I think the why uh, you don't have to sell. And the the use cases are going to grow and already are growing much, much faster in, in these emerging economies. Okay, that is excellent. Just to have you quickly clarify, I think I know the answer to this, but just to be sure, you say Korea, you really mean South Korea, correct? South Korea, correct. Right. South Korea. Okay. Now, what impact, if any, Edgar, would you say COVID-19 has had on the development and use of blockchain technology? Yes, I think um, the pandemic and COVID uh, really accelerated all digital transformation, not the disuse of blockchain technology, right? Excel including what we're doing today, you know, pre-pandemic, maybe we wouldn't have been so easily put in communication to do a podcast like this. Digital transformation just grew out of need and accelerated trends that were already happening. But specifically to blockchain, I think contactless payments, the idea of um, needing a mobile solution that's not, that's more robust. I mean, even uh, the Federal Reserve System, Fedwire, has gone down, as in you can't move money around because a uh, wow. computer system has gone down. Uh, Bitcoin has been around since 2009, has zero downtime. Wow. Zero. 100% uptime, right? <laughs> so uh, in a system where you can't trust the infrastructure that you have or you, it's been stress test, you start looking for different alternatives and being like, oh, wow, what happens if... Um, there's no one at the bank because they're all at home or there's no one at, you know, um, government institutions to, to notarize a document that I need. And so a lot of this started to accelerate the need for digital systems that are more robust, more secure and more decentralized. What I mean by that is so much put on one party to provide that service. More resilient, I think, would be the right word. Resilient systems that live in the digital world. So that would that would push. That's number one. Number two, I think, if you look back at March 2020, before we really even knew what this virus was, what was the first response out of the United States and most and, and many um, of the G10, G20 uh, economies, was to issue debt something called quantitative easing, right? I mean, uh, there was a package pushed through $6 trillion and the Federal Reserve came out and said, hey, we're gonna support anything we need, you know, as, as much as we need, right? So before we even knew what this virus was, there was $6 trillion that was inputted, input into our monetary system. And what that caused was for investors to start looking for an inflation hedge. And what they're doing is, you know, usually the, the inflation hedges that we've had in the past are gold, silver, commodities, uh, art, real estate. And uh, because cryptocurrencies already existed, I think there was a push 
for how do can I have money that can't be debased, apolitical money, right? And that was a huge catalyst into digital assets, cryptocurrencies, and, um, and, and this idea that we can trust something that's just protected by math and, and software code and not necessarily a central bank. Maybe even more than a central bank that's becoming more and more politicized, right? That we've seen not only in, in, in the United States, but around the world. Um, so this idea of digital transformation accelerating, the uh, institutional investors looking for an inflation hedge and finding at least some part of that uh, use case in cryptocurrencies and crypto assets uh, have really accelerated uh, the interest in blockchain, I would say. And, and thirdly, I think we saw some disruptions too in the global in global trade and global supply chains and global lines right when you know uh, ch uh ch delays in factories in china or in shipments cause what we saw in you know the shortages in ppe in the united states made it more clear that we need to have more transparency and visibility in our global trade lines and what what where those bottlenecks are and how concentrated are we and blockchain allows that transparency and visibility in real time so i think not only in the payment sector and sort of the store of value or inflation hedge kind of use case but also in using blockchain in in supply chain and logistics like i mentioned before became even more prominent because we knew how not, I don't want to say weak, but vulnerable our current system was and how the importance of visibility into how that works was so important. Excellent. Just to have you quickly clarify, you've used the word decentralized several times. To me, what I'm gathering from that simplistically again, Edgar, is that I now individually will own my data as opposed to somebody else owning it. It's all in this one honeypot, as you said, right? Is that in its most simplest sense what you mean when you keep using that word decentralized, that it's no longer this one entity that owns it all. It's been divvied up, so to speak, to the individuals. It's really their data. Uh, yes, I think that's one part of it. There's two, I think, two components there. Uh, one of them is decentralized in the sense that there are several different computers that have the same exact copy. So if you hack one of them and that one goes down and you change data in one of them, all the other computers that have the same copy that hasn't been hacked are gonna disregard that. Oh. So it becomes more robust and res resilient when it's decentralized in that way. So that's more on a technical level, but on, on from maybe from a user perspective, you're right. What it's also doing is pushing security to the edges, right? Where not only am I responsible for my, in a sense, money or assets or data, because I'm the one and the only one that has the secure key, the passcode to unlock, right? This data, it, the data could be how much Bitcoin I have, or it could be, um, you know, what my health records look like, yeah. or it could be um, where I went to eat yesterday, or it could be a like on a, on a social media platform, right? All these are forms of transactions, but I am the one that has the key to open that. And then I can, I can create a key just for that person, just for that one use case. Yeah. So I could say, hey, Google, if you want my data, then I'll give it to you. Um, you pay me for it. And it doesn't give you access to everything. It just gives you access to what I opt in for. And I can, I can have one big lock and several different keys that do different things. So it allows us to roll in permission. 
And so it's taking more responsibility. And that's, I think, a big obstacle to adoption because people don't like their responsibility. Maybe they're like, I'm fine. Give it all to them because if I lose my password, I don't know. I don't want to be responsible for that. Or I, you know, I don't want to have um, custody of my assets. I want to give it to some, to someone else. Um, it's the same same kind of thing. You need to take responsibility for your data. And if we all do that, we all, as a system, become more secure, more robust, and more resilient. That's a very good point that I hadn't thought about. People not embracing it potentially, or maybe in reality, you may be seeing that because they're concerned about having to be responsible for their data, just like people are oftentimes more than willing to let somebody manage their money, right? Rather than they have the responsibility of managing their money. The focal point of looking forward, which tends to be about trends in the future, opportunities in the future. So if you were to project, and I know it's you can't say anything with certainty, we learned that for sure in the last 15 months or so, but Edgar, if you were to look out over the next few years, let's say, in terms of blockchain development and use, what impact do you see it having on societies, on jobs, on economies, are there going to be business winners? Are there going to be business losers, employee winners, employee losers? What do you see unfolding over the next few years? Because you're in the heart of this. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm optimistic about what this allows us. And sometimes the world always seems to give you the right tool when the problem seems to be the greatest. Mm. And we do have a, a problem today with confidence in government institutions, health professionals, uh, information, news, um, right? Uh, oh, yeah. we're, living, we're living in a world of fake social media, fake news, fake money, all of this, right? And so we, we need a, a solution to that. And I think blockchain provides a big component of that. It's not the only one, but it's a big component. And stepping back, if I look at it more, you know, from a, a bird's eye view, blockchain really is what I like to call the collective memory the collective memory of what happened. And we're gonna see this more in our society of we will have um, autonomous vehicles, right? Uh, we will have distributed energy systems, uh, biometrics and even uh, internet of things in our bodies. We will have more drones and robotics. And all these technologies of the fourth industrial revolution are going to produce an immense amount of data and data that's extremely sensitive. My, my genetic uh, code, for example, um, my, um, my heart rate, um, where I went where. Um, and what we'll need is a trust of all this data of who is able to access it when and with what permission. And blockchain is going to allow us to do that. And looking forward, what I think is we're going to have more trust in, in software code and less and less in large institutions. And so that's the biggest thing. I think we're going to become more efficient, but we're going to start trusting and verifying with mathematical certainty and not with institutional confidence. Uh, and that's a big, big step forward because I think we can get to consensus that you know, two plus two equals four faster than we can get to consensus that, you know, Republican Party leadership is more um, 
trustworthy than democratic or anything like that, right? When we trust in human nature and um, rhetoric more than math. And blockchain allows us to do that. How is that going to change how we architect our society? I think we're going to have less dependence on nation states and more remote work, more ability of this jurisdictional arbitrage, right? Where you can choose as a citizen, not from where you're born, of why you need to you know, live there or work there, but because of your own individual choice and freedom and saying, I'd rather live and work in a different uh, jurisdiction and still be able to, to be part of a global economy and still be able to receive money, payments, and then in a way that's not really dependent on a bank or on, uh, on a government allowing you to access it. That's a big difference, especially now when it comes to who are you, right? Who are you as Jeff or as Edgar? Is it, is it the Costa Rican government that gave me my passport that says, well, you're, you are you because I say so? Or is it gonna become now a web of trust between our relationships that say who I am, right? And that doesn't really depend on where I live or was born, right? And uh, blockchain allows for these kind of concepts of decentralized ID now. It's not ID in a centralized party that says you are you because a centralized government says you are, because there's a lot of people out there that don't have ID. And if you don't have ID, you can't have a bank account, you can't have a job, you can't be part of society. Right. So it, there's a lot to kind of unravel there. And I know that I'm giving big concepts, but it's because we're gonna start being hopefully, in my optimistic view, more free, individually free, because now my relationships and who I am decide my ID, right? My reputation, not where I was born. My ability to receive and interact in global commerce is now much, much easier and simpler because it doesn't depend on a centralized currency. And my ability to own assets in a digital world and accumulate assets become much easier uh, than before. So again, looking forward, I think we're going to empower the individual more, empower individual over their data and, and over the way that they store and earn value, uh, over the way that they uh, choose and interact in the jurisdiction that best reflects their values, and hopefully a more transparent and accountable society. That's a great perspective and certainly an optimistic portrayal, as you said. So let me ask you, Edgar, just a couple of quick follow-up questions. What do you think this might mean for, for companies like Google and Microsoft and Facebook who own a lot of this data that you were talking about earlier? And what about those people you alluded to, the individual who may not want to own their data because that puts some responsibility in their hands or greater responsibility? What would you say about those two things, Edgar? Yeah, I think to the first question, um, it's adapt or perish, I think. And you've already seen these companies do that. I mean, Facebook is already adopting the ability of making payments through a blockchain, right? Uh, Google is already looking into infrastructure for blockchains, right? And how they move their Google Cloud as part of uh, securing these blockchain networks. So th they're moving in step. And because I think they they realize that they have to, they're going to be around, they're just going to, they're going to adapt their value proposition to what the consumer is now able to do. On the second question, it's a user experience problem. That's just making things so simple and so easy. It's sort of the same way that someone, when the internet first came up said, oh, the internet's just for scams and for 
uh, gambling and for illicit activities, right? And then that person then said, well, I like the internet because I use the, the email to keep in touch with friends and for my work, but I would never buy anything on the internet because I would never put in my credit card information there, right? That's, I can't trust that. I would never do that. Yeah, um, and then you have things like, and then you have things like Amazon. Now you do it all the time. You don't think twice, right? right. Because the user experience got so much better. So that's just going to follow as well. Once the user experience is there, the user doesn't even realize because it's something that we do all the time. So a lot of great things that are coming. And I think just to end on one point, I truly envision that games on a blockchain and, and digital assets in gaming are going to become more profitable and more like work and work is going to become more like a game, right? <laughs> and more, more enjoyable. So we're going to have this, this blend between what is gaming online and what is working online and um and i'm really excited to see how that that mixes that's I'll interesting. Leave the, the audience with that one last point yeah that's interesting and again what you remind me of and some of the things you said edgar is the estonian society and how they're using blockchain to create this digital society that in some cases knows no geographic boundaries and people can protect their medical records and Voting online is very easy and more people are doing it. I'm wondering now if we can get to the other nitty gritty aspect of looking forward, which is about opportunities. And it sounds like you're very optimistic about blockchain. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind letting our listeners know more about what opportunities do you think blockchain might offer to students choosing a career People may be, Edgar, are not happy with their jobs or they lost their jobs. So they're starting a new career, they're changing careers, and maybe even individuals looking to start a business or invest in something. Where do you see opportunities for those disparate individuals in blockchain technology? Great question, Jeff. The opportunities are going to be plentiful. When you start talking about a fundamental technology like the internet, like blockchain, the opportunities for any career path, if you're a student, are really in any field that you're passionate about. Because really what you're going to find yourself is in a future where the fabric of society is shifted, where possibly the way that we organize data, the way that we organize relationships, and the way that incentive structures are set up are different. You're going to need people in law, you're going to need people in health that understand tech, finance, philosophy, religion, because it really is a fundamental shift in our society. So as a student, clearly you need to understand uh, that we're becoming more digital and more tech intensive, but that's been happening for the last decade. Uh, but now we're using more robust distributed systems and decentralized governance uh, that change the way that we implement. And I would say even increase the need for more of these soft skills, like how to market correctly, uh, how to create a better user experience, how to regulate and create uh, value in a society that's shifting. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur or someone looking to shift careers, I would say similar to that, but also there's going to be new opportunities for you to do that from, from wherever you are. We've already seen that 
careers, not only in technology, but specifically in blockchain, allow you to work remotely, allow you to get paid quicker, allow you to get paid by, by job or by task and not necessarily on a traditional salary. So you're becoming more of these digital nomads that allow you to live and work uh, from anywhere and get paid in the currency of your choice. And that currency might be a digital currency. But really the opportunity is gonna be plentiful for not only career paths uh, for students, but also for entrepreneurs and professionals looking to reimagine the services and products that we have today without so many middlemen. And I think here's where I'll end, and this is key. The opportunity lies in someone else's margin, right? In the middlemen. So if you see an industry or a sector or a process that has plenty of middlemen all taking up a piece, that's where there's opportunity for blockchain. When you're disintermediating by using technology. So there's a famous quote, and I, I don't want to falsely attribute it, but your margin is my opportunity. And that's definitely true for blockchain. Excellent. Just a quick follow-up on that. So you're saying, Edgar, a person doesn't have to be a technological wizard like you are. They, like the internet, have to understand the possibilities associated with blockchain like they did or do with the internet and then figure out how they fit in best with it? 100%. Okay. I would argue that maybe uh, Jeff Bezos wasn't the best coder, but he definitely saw the opportunity between direct direct sales on the internet. And that's where the opportunity lies, right? And seeing how we can reimagine the services and products that exist today, where there's plenty of middlemen in them, you know, taking a piece through peer-to-peer -peer transactions. And that's, that's where I really think we're going to see new products and services pop up. That is excellent. Thank you. Edgar, this has been great, wonderful information shared, very uplifting, which is what Looking Forward tries to do. We can't always be uplifting, but your personality, the information you share, your perspective is very upbeat and informative. And I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for being our guest. If you could just tell everybody how they can get a hold of you, EOS Costa Rica, and find out more about the services you provide. Sure. We can find us at eoscostarica.io. You can also find us on Twitter as EOSCR and myself on LinkedIn, Edgar Fernandez. I'd be happy if you want to ping me and reach out and continue the conversation. Thank you so much again for having me on today, Jeff. Thank you, Edgar. It was terrific. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.